Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whom sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field, which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me? Since I am a foreigner, Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. And Father, we do thank you for the story. Lord, we pray that as we uh, work through this text, that you would help us, Lord, to understand uh, the purpose, the message and the truth, Lord, uh, wrapped up in this great little passage. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Okay, so I want to kind of ease in uh, to to remember chapter one, because if we don't remember chapter one, we're not going to really understand the setting. So if we can go to the next slide, I'm going to kind of do a little review for us. Uh, We have the nation of Israel Uh, on the north here. You have the Sea of Galilee. It's a it's a freshwater lake um, that's been fed by three springs that I think one of them's up there. You can't see them all. Um, So it's fed by three natural springs in Israel. It's still there today. Um, on the southern edge of the lake, it feeds into the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs from the north to the south into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is this huge lake. Um, it's a Dead Sea because it's, uh, it's salt water. There is no exit point um, for the Dead Sea. The, basically, as the water comes in, um, the water leaves through evaporation, leaving the minerals and all of the, the silt and stuff behind. Um, it, it's, it's really useless, barren land. Um, if we go to the next slide, we'll, we'll zoom into the southern region here. 
And so our story last place takes place in Bethlehem. So here's Bethlehem. Uh, there's Jerusalem, which is five miles to the north. Bethlehem is a land that these pages, as we read about um, Naomi, Elimelech, their family, then, then Ruth as she comes back. Uh, we know that Ruth becomes uh, the, the, the great-grandmother of King David. And so King David, is, he would be wandering the, these hills with his, his sheep, his cattle, or whatever he had. I forget what, I've been in Valley Center long enough, I should know the animals. They were four-footed animals and they ate grass. I think they were sheep, right? Yeah, because one little sheep goes away. He cared for his sheep. And, and on this very ground, a few generations later, baby Jesus would be born in the land of Bethlehem. And so much happens on this land of Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem, its meaning means house of bread. It was in the promised land. The people of Israel were, were, were told to go to Israel, that it was a land of milk and honey that God would provide for him. His promises all took place in this land. And so in this land, during this time, they lived during the Judges. The book right before Ruth is judges. If you read through judges, you'll see the condition of the state of the people. They, they were told by God, if you, if you honor my commands, if you live for me, I'll bless you. If you disobey my commands, they'll be cursing. We, we see that the people did as they saw right in their own eyes. And it was a time of great um, struggle and disobedience. Ruth is believed to be set during the time of Gideon. And so there's a famine in the land. In Bethlehem, this family that we're introduced to, Elimelech, which means my God is king, uh, has this discussion. We don't really see the discussion, but we see the problem. That his, him and his wife, Naomi, their two sons, uh, their Star Wars-ish sounding names, Klingon, uh, Chilion, and Malon. So, I don't think they're Star Wars-ish, but they sound like it to me. And, and they, they have the, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed the kids? There's a famine in the land. How are we going to survive? Do we stay here where God tells us to stay? Or maybe we, we zip over to Moab for a couple weeks to, to get food, to get sustenance, and then we'll come right back. And we learned about the land of Moab, which is found in this region. Um, it, it, it looks fairly close to Israel, and it is. But if you'll go to the next slide, you're probably not going to be able to see the picture up here. But if you want to turn around and look at the TV on the back, you can see it clearer. Um, this is from Israel looking across the Dead Sea today um, to modern-day Jordan. But those are significant mountains. There's a physical barrier. Um, in addition to the Dead Sea, there's these mountains. And on the other side, it's the Jordan. But for the people of Israel, you can go back to the previous slide. And we'll just kind of we'll linger here for a little bit. You have this mountain range. There's, there's physical distance. There's barriers in between. But these people of Moab, they're descendants of Lot. After the destruction of his town, after his wife was destroyed, his two daughters that remained were concerned about carrying on their, their family line. So they concocted a plan. To get their dad drunk to where he passes out. And basically each of them have sexual relations with their dad. And two children are born. One from each of the daughters. One of the daughters, is, one of the daughters has Moab. Which becomes his people. And they're basically moved out here. And in Deuteronomy chapter 3. There's severe warnings given to the nation of Israel. Don't, to the 10th generation. The people of Moab will not enter into worship with you. Don't pray for blessing on them and all of these worries listen these are the people that as you 
came back from Egypt. They wouldn't give you food or water. They, they were the ones that set up Balaam and tried to curse and trick Israel. But God has been faithful to you. So there's this, between these two people groups, there's this distrust. They, they were warned for Mary because they served false gods and they would lead their children astray. This concern about leading them astray was the reason not to allow them into the place of worship. And so they made this decision as they were faced with sort of the, do, do we follow God? Do we, uh, do we trust him that he'll provide for us? Or do we, do we leave our people and our land to go to this place that God speaks very poorly of to get some food? And I believe they make the, the economic decision over the spiritual implications of their family and they depart. And they make this journey, which I think was supposed to be a short stint, that they were going to sojourn, get some land and go back. But by the end of verse 2, it says that their family remained there. We don't know what happened, but we know that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. Naomi's left with no husband. She still has her two sons. We learn that they marry Moabite women, which was not forbidden, but it was discouraged it was not thought wise for the fear of, uh, of what would happen to the godliness of the generation. Would their grandchildren, would their daughters know God and continue following after God? Certainly their ceremony would have been pagan for there were no Jews in this area. And so the daughters marry. The mom, Naomi, looks on at her daughters. I imagine over that 10 years hoping for grandchildren to come along, a grandson that the family line would continue for there was nothing more shameful for the family line to like disappear. And that's all her hope was that, that, well, I still have my boys. Well, 10 years goes by and these two boys pass away. And now there's Naomi left with her two daughter-in-laws, Oprah, or I mean Orpah. It helps you remember it. Orpah, she stayed. And then there was Ruth, who the story follows. Naomi decides that she's going to head back to her people. She'd heard that in Bethlehem there was bread again. And so they begin to make their journey back. And I'm guessing that somewhere near the border between Moab and Reuben, where they'd gone far enough, I believe that Naomi looks at her two daughter-in-laws and says, you know, you've, you've, you've traveled far enough with me. There's no reason for you to continue for God has placed his hand upon me for my decisions that I'm being punished. There's no sense for you to, to come to my, to my people, to my land. Stay here. Go back to your mother's house. They were not sisters. They would have different moms. Go, go back. Get remarried. There's hope for you. And so they weep in verse 14. That's the second time. I think they wept again in verse 9. There was a lot of crying last week. It was a sad, dark story. And so after she convinces the one daughter-in-law to go on, Ruth stays clinging to her. And I believe at this point, Naomi got a little harsher with her words towards Ruth. There was no sense for her to come back to Israel. There was hope for her. And she basically pulls, she holds no punches in verse 15. And she says, then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods, the jugular vein. If you come back to Israel, you're going to be 
an outcast. There's going to be prejudice against you because you're of Moab. Your sister went back to her gods. Ultimately, the heart of this, they worship Yahweh, one God, in the singular, the true God. And they had all of their idolatry, and the sister went back. And she thought at this point that this would shake Ruth. And in verse 16, this is where Ruth responds with these powerful words. I believe her decision in in, in verse 16 stands in contrast with Elimelech chasing Uh, the road of economics and easier choices instead of being obedient to God, she takes the harder road in obedience to God. And she says powerfully, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you for where you go. I will go and where you lodge. I will lodge your people shall be my people and your God, my God may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death, parts you and me now this verse is read at weddings all the time but it has this has to do with daughter-in-law and mother-in-law and 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 ruth understands the stakes that are in play here she's going to this place that they were they were not in a famine anymore there was bread there but these people would have rejected her she would have been an outcast even though she Most commentators believe that at this point, when she clings to her mother-in-law, that she converted to Judaism. Times would be tough for her, but she said, you know what? I'm going to go, even though it may be difficult, I'm staying with you, for your God is my God. And so they continue. They finally make their way to Bethlehem. You can go back to the the scriptures uh, references there. And so in verse 19 of chapter 1, they come to Bethlehem, and as they enter the town... Naomi's been gone for 15 years, maybe. We, don't, we know for at least 10 that from the death of Elimelech to the death of the two sons, 10 years had elapsed. So I think it's safe to assume maybe 15, 20 years since Elimelech and Naomi have made their journey out of Bethlehem as they approach back in. The people of the town, the women, are talking to each other. Could that, could that be Naomi? Is it possible that that could be Naomi? You remember Elimelech and they were married and they left to to Moab. Eventually, Naomi gets wind of this and she confronts the people and says, no longer call me Naomi, which means pleasant or sweetness. She says, call me Mara, which means bitterness. And she says the reason that she wants to be called Mara is because the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. This is, this is kind of depressing. She's like, I went away with everything. I went back and I was, she seems to take full responsibility for the disobedience and, and, and the place that she finds herself in. She believes that this is God's cursing to her because of her disobedience. She says, stop calling me Naomi. But I love that the Bible, as we follow this story, the, the, the story doesn't shift suddenly to this lady Mara. The Bible continually calls her Naomi, sweetness. And so they return in verse 22. We see that it's a time of the harvest, the, of the barley harvest. And they're there. They've been gone for many years. Ruth is now in a town without her people. I'm not quite sure if there was any language barriers. Certainly there was cultural barriers. 
trying to figure out what are we going to do now? We're here. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, there's a, it's, a, it's, it's more of a commentary. It's, it's more the author kind of gives us a little piece to the puzzle that they maybe don't have. We're going to be introduced to this man, Boaz. And in verse 1, we read, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And so Naomi is the mother-in-law. She was married to Elimelech. Elimelech had this distant relative who was a kinsman. We're going to look more at this in chapter 3. But for today's purpose, this idea of a kinsman was that if you were in a family and you had a brother or a family member, whatever the, 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 the implications were, that if they died and they had family, you had some obligations to take care of this family because they were your relatives. There was a relationship. And so the author here tells us that Naomi had this guy who was a kinsman that was related to her husband. We see that he was of great wealth. You could also translate this, that he was a mighty man of valor. It's the same verbiage used towards Gideon in the Old Testament. Whether it's speaking of valor or money, it doesn't really matter. Both apply to him. He was a man of great wealth. We see that as his story unfolds, he's a man of great integrity and valor. And we need to get it out of our heads that How much money you have or how little money you have has anything to do with the character of who you are. We seem we seem to in our culture say, well, if you've got a lot of money, that makes you a bad person. And if you have no money, that means you're more righteous. The Bible says that there's righteous people and unrighteous people. There are righteous people that have lots of money. There are righteous people that have no money. There are unrighteous people that have all kinds of money. And there are unrighteous people that have no money. And in this story... This man, Boaz, is introduced as a man of great substance. He had land, he had, cro- he had crops, he had resources, but he was also a man of valor. And we'll see that as the story unfolds. And in verse 2, I don't know how long they've been in Bethlehem. Uh, maybe they're camped on the side of the road. We have no indication that Naomi has any other family that she's like crashing with. And so they're set up in Bethlehem. I don't know how long they've been there. My guess by Naomi's testimony, she's older, not able to work anymore. And, and Ruth is trying to come up with a plan. And I love the humility of Ruth and the, the respect for her mother-in-law. And she says, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. So she looks at her mother-in-law and she said, well, I'm not from here, but I've learned about this idea of gleaning. That your God has instituted this sort of, what would be equivalent to sort of our welfare system, our food stamps, a way of getting help. And she said, please let me go find a field. It's the harvest and I'll glean. And so what is gleaning? I'm glad you asked. If you'd go with me to Deuteronomy I'm going to turn my page here. Deuteronomy chapter 15. And we're going to look at two different, <clears throat> two different places in Deuteronomy. Uh, the first, I think the significance of Deuteronomy chapter 15 sort of sets up for gleaning. Don't let people tell you the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. 
God is God. He is the same today as he was yesterday and he will be going forward. The Old Testament is filled with instructions of compassion. And in Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 7 through 11 is this is the heart issue of those who follow after God. God gives them instructions. I think these are just as relevant today as they were back then. And God says, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generally lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks says, listen, if you have a brother, if you have a friend, if you see somebody who's in need and you have the ability, be generous, be open-handed with them. Verse 8, but you shall freely open your hand to him and you shall generously lend, lend him sufficient for his need. I like, it says lend. It's not like, it's not even necessarily a gift. If, if, they're, if they're in a time of need, give, loan it to them. Lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near. And your eye is hostile towards your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin to you. So he says, as you're going out and you see a brother in need, if you have resources, don't be shy about loading them some money to help fill the gap, to, to, to meet the burden that they have, that they could sustain themselves. And he says, the whole issue is with the heart. He says, you know, now this, every seven years, what would happen? We don't do this anymore. But every seven years, all debts were basically wiped, wiped clean. If you owed anybody anything, it was wiped, the, the slate was wiped clean. And so God says, if you have something and you know the seventh year is approaching, like you're six years, 11 months into the last time the debt was wiped clean, you see your brother in need. Normally you would give it to him, no problem. But then your mind starts going, oh, wait, it's, it's, it's uh, December 1st of uh, 2013 in January. The whole thing gets, oh, man, I need to go the other direction because... If I loan it to him, then suddenly he doesn't pay me back. He's off scot-free. And God's saying, don't even let that thought enter your mind. If you have, if I've blessed you and you see somebody in need, you care for them. I'm trying to figure out. I'm not just, I didn't just freeze up. I'm trying to figure out if I want to go down a road or not. And I think I'm going to pass going down that road. He says, if you don't give to him, that person could cry out against you, saying, Lord, I need help. And here this person is that can help me. They chose not to help me. God says, I'll hear their prayer. They could go poorly for you. But if you do this thing, then God will bless you. And I do think there's some wisdom to that. It's that if somebody asks you for help and you want to give them to meet their need, you're almost better served by by giving it to them, even if it's a loan. But in your mind, saying, "If they never pay me back, my friendship is more important." If you if you're loaning to somebody that you don't have that sort of friendship, or your friendship is more valuable than the loan, you're setting yourself up for trouble. But when you loan somebody money and they say, "I'll pay you back," and whatever, whatever, 
and then you kind of forget about it, it's kind of great. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've had people come to me and say, hey man, here's that 40 bucks I owe you. I'm like, are you sure? I, I don't remember loaning 40 bucks. You're like, no, 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 it was a few months ago. You loaned me 40 bucks. I'm like, I never loan money. Not that I never loan money, but I never have cash to loan people money. So it's like, I mean, who operates in cash? I'm like, yoo-hoo, hey, I'll treat. Let's go to lunch, you know, free money. It's like, hey. And I think that's what God's getting at is to like, guard your hearts. As soon as I figure out what place I am. And he says, uh, verse 11, this wisdom here that, People have been trying to erase this truth like through politics, through social needs. Look what God says in the Old Testament. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and the poor in your land. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 12. I think it's verse 8. It's probably right up there, but I'm not looking up there. Yeah, it is verse 8. Remember, they're there, and the lady comes, and she breaks the perfume on his feet. This is a valuable perfume. And all the disciples like, she could have sold that for $10,000. And we could have used that to feed the poor. And Jesus is like, come on, guys. You would have never sold that to give it to the poor. And he's like, the poor. Well, he didn't say that. That's my commentary on his attitude. That, that my, what I suspect. But what he says is, guys, the poor will always be here. I will not always be here and for her to do this to worship me while i'm here is a beautiful thing there's always going to be we're not going to like it's just the bible says that there will always be poor amongst us and if you've been blessed and all of us in this room have been blessed our poorest people in this nation are among the wealthiest at least one percent of all human history Saturday, we're going to go down to Mexico, a handful of us. And it's going to be a super good thing for a lot of people to see what this, even in Mexico, that poverty is not the lowest, lowest poverty, but it's definitely third world country. Personally, I want my daughter to see this. That's why I'm going, why I'm not bringing the whole family, but I'm bringing grace with me. And it's going to be good for her to be exposed to this because it puts everything in perspective. And God says, don't lose sight of what I've blessed you with. And as I bless you, don't have your fists closed and hoarding. Trust me, and if you see need, I want you to be generous and kind. Now, this is the hard issue. If you flip with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 24, we see the system that's been put in place, this, this gleaning idea that Ruth wants to take, not advantage of, but she wants to utilize. And so over in Deuteronomy verse Chapter 24, verse 19. He gives instructions to those who had land for harvesting. And he says, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheath in the field, you shall not go back to get it. So you have your reapers. Your your reapers are reaping and they're basically giving all their stuff. I've never done it, so I'm bad at illustrating up here. But you leave one behind, you move on. Oh, I need to go get that. God says, no, if you left it there, just leave it and you keep going. He goes on to say, you shall not go back to get it. Um, It shall be for the notice of the categories. Alien, I know I talked about Star Wars, but we're not talking about those kind of aliens. We're talking about foreigners in your land. I'm trying to figure out again. 
how much down this road do I want to go down? We have guys in our church that come to the Spanish service. I don't check passports to come to church, just to be honest with you guys. Some of you guys might be illegals from France. I don't know, but we'll check your passports after church. No, we're not going to do that. You might have political leanings, and, and, and I don't want to get into the whole political side. I'm concerned solely with the heart of those who follow God. I know that there are guys on the corner down here that, that may or may not have papers to be here. I don't know. But God is concerned about the aliens in the land. And for Israel, it was there were aliens in the land. There were those that were there either before them or came into their land that wandered. Israel had been aliens as they wandered around. So there's the alien, there's the orphan, the child who had lost their parents. And for the widow, those who had lost their spouses. In order that the Lord God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the, bow, the bows again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. This is beautiful. This is, I don't know that our system is the best system, but this system of providing for those in need, it provided dignity. You set a system so that they could come and they could work. They could honorably try to feed themselves. And it was all in place. And God says, if you do this, you'll have my blessing. And so this is sort of the system that was in place as we head back to Ruth. Chapter 2, verse 2, when Ruth looks at her mother-in-law and she says, please, can I go out to the field and try to seek permission to try to find somebody, to go behind the reapers, that as they leave behind the barley, I'll pick up the scraps and I'll get us some food so we could eat tonight. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So she departed. And went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. And I love this. So she goes out. As the story continues, we know that she goes to the, I'm not sure what the job title is. But of the reapers, there was middle management, the guy with the clipboard. She goes up to the guy that's in charge for the boss of those that are harvesting the land. And she says, do you mind if I follow behind them? And reap. And the guy says, yeah, no problem. Ruth has no clue where she is. The land isn't even necessarily. I'm certainly they knew where the, the, um, you know, the surveying marks of what, where the property lines are. She starts in one land and eventually as she's going, she just happens. I love it. By total happenstance. She just happens to be in the field that just happens to be owned by Boaz, who just happens to be connected to her father-in-law, who's deceased, who just happens to be her kinsman. How, the God, how God in his sovereignty works through happenstance. I know with Christians, it's like when you say, oh, luck, you know, that's a bad word in Christianity by a lot of, you know, luck, just chance. Oh, coincidence. From our perspective, stuff happens. 
that you just happen to be somewhere. And then there's just happens to be somebody who that God uses to happen to work in your life. through It's beautiful how God works. That he's sort of like the anonymous God, sort of like setting up situations. And you see this situation sort of unfolding. She didn't know that she just happened to be in Boaz. This is the commentary of the writer. Ruth is just out there working. She's working hard. My father-in-law, used to, when we were at the same church together, we used to have this saying as we were getting going about, we were like, hey, let's just get out and go do stuff. And we were surprised that when we just kind of, you know, left our house and were out in the community, stuff just sort of happened to happen. Happened to happen. I don't know. We used to say good things happen when you're out. And so here Naomi says, I'm not going to sit around and mope like, I'm not Naomi, Ruth. Ruth asked Naomi, hey, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go glean, I'm going to do something. And as she's out working, putting some feet to her prayers, God then guides her right into Boaz's field, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, at the same time, I'm going to fast forward in the story because the author hasn't given it to us yet. We know that she'd been working in this field. She happened to be in Boaz's field. Uh, she probably got there at sunrise. Now it's like lunchtime because at the second half of this chapter, they're going to have lunch together. Uh, and then this conversation that's unfolding, we know that Ruth is now taking a quick break. She's been working all morning. She's in this house. She's having a quick break while all of this story sort of unfolds. Uh, Boaz walks in and I'd love his personality. As he walks in, he looks at all of the men working and he says, May the Lord be with you. These are guys who've been slaving away in the field all day. And they were slaving. And may the Lord bless you. It's like this. My boss is great. This guy is awesome. I mean, he just kind of walks in there. This week, I had one of the coolest things happen to me in a long time. There are two people who have had a profound impact on my life and my walk with God. The first was the guy who nagged me to go to church. He, I'm so thankful. He nagged me to go to church probably for six months. I finally went to church and then now I'm a pastor. And, and so my life was radically different because of his courage to nag me to go to church. So the second guy is after I was a Christian, I was in the SEAL teams. I didn't know how to sort of, my Christianity was sort of like on Sundays away from work. And then I was at work and I didn't know how being a Christian fit into the SEAL teams. And I was really sort of struggling. I mean, I kept, I was feeling guilty for my failure and how I kept stumbling. And I bump into this guy, Billy, in my second platoon. I can say his name, just so you know. Anybody wants to correct me, he's, I'm not breaching any security clearance. So Billy, Billy was this just freak of nature. He was weird. He, big guy. Kind of goofy, super, super cheap. He didn't believe in spending money at all. One of my buddy's wives, Anna's at the zoo. He eventually, he comes to my house on Monday. But like Anna's with, she's like, oh no, he just showed up. I gotta, I'm like, this is Billy. You don't have to worry about cleaning the house for Billy. And Anna, the lady that Anna's with is like, oh yeah, we used to have to send him shampoo because he was too cheap to like pay for it. I'm like, yeah, he got ordered by the commanding officer to shower because his men on the ship were complaining about the stench. But Billy was great. Billy was a missionary kid, but then he joins the SEAL teams and he's like this warrior amongst warriors. He's been at SEAL Team 6 for like the last 13 years. I've texted him and kept in contact with him. 
And he shows up on Monday night. And I, I'm having this flood of memories this week. And I'll never forget going into that platoon as I was like in my phase of like, I want to read through the Bible. I was on mission to get through the Bible. But I had to like, I would sneak my Bible. I had a really thin one and I would sneak it under my shirt and I'd run to the bathroom, not because I had to go to the bathroom, just and I'd shut the door and I'd just be in the stall like reading. And I was like, God, what's taking so long? Uh, I'm just not feeling those MREs, you know, like making up stuff. And I'm just in there reading, reading, reading. And then... Then I meet this guy and I walk into the platoon space. He's just there with his feet kicked up, big old Bible on his lap reading. And I was like, what are you doing, dude? Anybody can walk in here right now. He's like, so you got a Bible on your lap. Put that thing away. Are you crazy? He's like, it's okay, man. I can read my Bible here. What are they going to do to me? Like, what are they going to do to you? They're going to make fun of you. They're going to harass you. Probably going to tape you up, give you a happy hat. Like, all, this, all of this horrible stuff can happen. I'm like, how are you sitting there reading? He's like, I'm actually not even reading. Because I'm experiencing a lot of that same stuff. But I want to be a witness. I, I want to sit here, at least hold my Bible, make it look like I'm reading. I'm like, wait, you're not even reading? Wait, we can do that? Why would you submit yourself? And, and so that whole two years of, like, seeing how Billy lived out his faith in the workplace, and he also worked at a level that he was and still is one of the most respected warriors within the SEAL teams. Like It had a profound impact on me and who I am today. And then he, he shows up after 15 years just out of the blue and says, hey, can I come over? Reading this story this week, I don't think that was just happenstance. To think of the influence that Boaz in his workplace as he's an employer how he can bring God into his place of employment to see the men and may the Lord bless you. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I, from what we see about Boaz, he is a, a mighty man of valor. And this should encourage you to see how, how do you live out your Christianity in your place of employment, your sports teams, your school. It's amazing how God will use little things in a person's life. So Boaz, after he says good morning to everybody, he sees the guy with the clipboard. Because in this house, whatever the house looked like, there's a lady over here. I don't know if she's the only lady, but clearly I think she's the the one lady that Boaz doesn't know. And he sees this lady, and I believe that her appearance was distinct from the Jews. Throughout this story, it's like every time you see poor Ruth, I said, I said Naomi, I think, but Ruth is two names. Everywhere Ruth is, this like Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, the lady from Moab. It's like clearly there was one lady, clearly she was different. And Boaz looks at his guy with the clipboard. In verse 5, Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Can you imagine Ruth during this time? Oh man, that's this is like the boss man. This is the guy that's really in charge. I asked him for permission. Maybe I'm going to get kicked out of here. Oh man, look at me. Reading the story, trying to imagine Ruth, I think of weed whacking. You guys all know I love weed whacking. 
we, well, I know we need rain, but I've kind of liked that we haven't had a lot of like weed whacking when, when it comes. And it's like, you have to address the weeds and you have to weed whack. It, it's like a three-day process for me mentally to kind of get bracing for it. It's like tomorrow I'm waking up and I'm weed whacking. And so when that morning comes, what happens is I roll out of bed, don't even bother like brushing my teeth or taking a shower because like, what's the point? I go straight outside and I find those camis that have been sitting there for the last nine months unwashed and I shake them out, make sure there's no critters in there. And I basically, you know, pull them. I have to kind of open them up because they've kind of sealed shut. Have my Padres long sleeves t-shirt and then I just start weed whacking and I'm like a total mess and, and I feel gross. And then almost, not every time, but a lot of times it'll be like, oh, I need more gas. Oh, I'm out of the little oil stuff to get more gas, so I'm going to go run down to Home Depot or something. I'm like, I'm just going to go like this. People in Home Depot, like, understand. They get it. And so then I throw my sunglasses up so it looks like a, a I want to say a Band-Aid, but it's not a Band-Aid. What are those things that girls put in their hair that kind of, like, hold? Headband. That's why a Band-Aid. It kind of sounds the same. So I kind of... Put the glasses up so it looks like I've combed my hair. And people at Home Depot, you can go get your stuff, and it's like no big deal for them. They don't really judge you. But then it's like, oh, I'm in town. I could probably just zip over to Costco to get some milk. I'm going to go do that. I won't bump into anybody. So then you go into Costco to get your milk and a couple items to bring back to the house. And it's like, lo and behold unshaved, unbrushed teeth, unshowered, and cami pants that haven't ever been washed, they'll be so-and-so. It's like, oh, no. They can probably smell me from there and trying not to make eye contact. Like, oh, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Like, that's good. Good. I was weed whacking. We can tell you were weed whacking. What else are you doing? It looks like you're painting. Oh, no, that was from before the weed whacking. uh, They're my painting clothes, too. And... And it's just like embarrassing, probably just me. But can you imagine Ruth? She's been there since sunrise working. Now the boss man's like, who's that girl over there? She's like, oh, no, I didn't brush my teeth. My hair's not combed. I don't like, I'm sure her teeth were brushed. That's just me, I'm sure, sometimes in these mornings. But she's like, oh, great. He's like looking at me. He's the boss. What's going to happen? And he, the worker begins to respond In verse 6, the servant who was in charge of the reapers, she is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. My guess is that Ruth can hear this conversation and everything. Moab's twice. She's that young Moabite woman, and she's from Moab, that came back with Naomi. Now, I don't think that at this point, Ruth even knows who this guy is and why he would care. But he suddenly, I've heard a lot about this story. Elimelech. I was my cousin, second time, whatever, Elimelech, whoever, however they were related. Oh, he left, he died, his boys died. I heard about Naomi coming back. She's in bad shape. I heard she had a daughter-in-law that came with her. So in his mind, he knows this whole story, who this girl is. And it's still the middle management guy speaking in verse 7 because he's still relaying the story. Ruth doesn't start speaking at this point. So he's still conveying what had happened earlier. And, And she said, 
Please let me glean and gather among the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. He's like, she's been working nonstop. She got here. She asked me at sunrise. As soon as they started, she's been working nonstop. Then from the story, we're not going to look at it today. Uh, Boaz is going to engage with her. He's going to offer her a little bit of lunch. And then she's going to go back and she's going to keep working until sunset. She is a hard worker. And so after he gives them all of the backdrop to this, Boaz is going to address Ruth. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. So we see here that Boaz appears to be a little bit older than her, that he would address her as daughter, or maybe it's his this authority position and who she was. I don't know. He says, do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and then go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. The story is fascinating to me. Like this is. There are three things. You guys should know me well enough that I don't like, um, I think it's called alliteration. You know, like three points, they all start with P's. You know, point number one. I've been trying to unalliterate what I came up with this, but I can't do it. So don't hold me. I'm not going to keep doing this. But in this, we see three things. They all happen to start with P because I was too lazy to come up with different words. But the first thing he does is he gives, if you're having your fill in the blanks, you could fill it in now, which we don't have those, is Permission. He gives her, hey, listen, you can stay on this land as long as you need to. Don't go anywhere else. As long as you need to glean, glean here. He then says, offers protection to her. He said, I've ordered the workers here not to touch you, not to hurt you. In my car, there's a problem with the radio. I don't, I, um, the, uh. There's like an external antenna that fell out. I'm sure I could replace it, but I haven't gone through the trouble because I'm fine. I can get some AM sta- FM stations. The AM's really bad. But so I don't like a lot of music. So I end up listening to a talk station on FM, which is like, it's, would it be my first choice? KPBS. And every now and again, there's these very interesting like stories like about things. And there was one about this lawsuit about this girl who's a migrant worker and somewhere in central California and how these girls get like raped and assaulted a ton in the fields by like the workers because often they're from another land and there's no protection of them. And this girl like actually like somebody took her case after she was raped and it took it to course and listening. It was heart wrenching. And then I see this the story of like. So I don't know what was going on on his field, like if there was like true like protection like that, but certainly the people that these fields were open with were like the least of these in their society. Aliens had no legal rights of protection. Doing chaplaincy, I know that it's, I see it all the time of, there's so many crimes that happen to illegal aliens here in the law enforcement. Like just, we don't want you to be afraid of us. We, we want to protect you to keep the safety down. We're not the safety down, we keep the, to provide security and safety for you. He says, listen, I've talked to all these guys. You are safe on my land. Which sort of gives the, 
the feeling that although God instructed it, we know this is during the times of the judges and people weren't necessarily obeying God. And so if she was in another field, she was vulnerable for some sort of assault or, or being hurt. And he says, you stay here, you take as much as you want and I will protect you. And if you're thirsty, drink from the jars that I provide. I don't know if he was like a soccer mom, if he provided little orange slices and, and water for the workers to go up. And, but he said, it's all your provision is there. Help yourself. Can you imagine Ruth in this? I go back. I know the, 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 we're not, the map's not up there. You don't have to go to the map. But can you imagine her on that fence as Naomi was saying, you go back. Your sister's already gone. You can catch up with her. Go to your people, your gods, for I'm going to my people and my God. This is not a place for you. I don't know if she had like a tug of war in her heart. Should I follow after him? Should I, should I trust God? But clearly her response is, I trust God no matter what. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how the details are going to fall into place. She gets there and she's, mother-in-law, can I, can I go glean in the field? She says, yes, go. Then she just happens to be in his field working. Then the boss just happens to notice her. He happens to be related to her. And then he happens to communicate. Well, I don't think it's happened. He decides because of the man that he is. He says, I'll protect you. You're welcome here. Can you imagine what she's feeling? She fell on her face in verse 10, bowing to the ground and, and said to him. Now, it doesn't say it here. But I think that there's enough evidence from the first chapter. I think she was crying. She's a girl, and she's like, oh, that'll get me in trouble. But like in the previous chapter, they're crying. Like they say goodbye, they cry, they're crying, they're crying, they're crying. But I think this is like would be a, a time that would be appropriate for a good cry. Am I trying to understand crying? But I see her just crumpled at his feet, overwhelmed with emotion and tears. How can it? How can it be? Like. Why have I found favor in your sight? She doesn't know anything about this whole kinsman thing. Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me? Look at it. She doesn't use Moabite, but she says, I'm a foreigner. Whatever the standard was that he was obligated to do under Mosaic law, he was going far beyond his obligation. And she said, why are you like, Why? This is beautiful that you see God's grace in her life. You see redemption in this story. It's caused me to ponder why would Boaz respond this way? Who was Boaz's mom? Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute that as Israel was going in, his dad, Salami or Salmon? No, Salmon. S-A-S-A. I use all of these little things to remember people's names. Often I remember the, so this, so this guy, Salmon, Salmon, he, he marries this prostitute. Boaz is born. Then as the story unfolds, I don't want to ruin the ending, but, but Boaz is going to marry Ruth, a Moabite, a descendant of Lot. And Jesus And King David are going to come through both of those women in DNA. It's a beautiful story of redemption. You know, this next week is the sanctity of human life. There's always like debate about when it actually falls in. And and the church, the evangelical church in large part, has 
gone to great lengths to protect the sanctity of human life from, from conception to natural death. And when I look at this story and I, I get a glimpse of Boaz, it makes, it, it chokes me up. During the last service, and I always have like permission to share this story. Like it's not like I'm doing this. Like I have like, I've been given carte blanche. I think that's a word to use. Like it means I can use it whenever I want under any circumstance. I've been given permission to share this story. So the church has become really good at protecting and defending those children that are unborn in the womb. Where I think we struggle and there's room for improvement. I'm trying to be more positive in this year. So I worded that a little bit more positive. I didn't, you guys notice that? I noticed. We have room for improvement. Is that when a young lady walks into the church building and she has two little kids that are crying and fussing and there's no husband, the church at large kind of condemns that young lady. She's damaged fruit. We don't want our good little homeschooled boys marrying that. But she's like, no. Nah. And the story that comes to mind is is Tom and Fran Stefan. I get choked up thinking about them because every time we kind of talk about that girl, she says, that was me at 16, pregnant with, with Andy, her daughter, who I'm friends with. And she's like, then I had no, there was no husband. The guy wasn't there. And I, I, I was damaged fruit, according to the, the people around me. And then Tom came in. Married her, loved her, cared for her. Andy's his daughter. It's a beautiful picture of redemption. And I look at Boaz, and I don't know if his mom had anything to do with it, but can you imagine your mom's a prostitute that like everybody knows about? And then your dad marries her, and then you're born from him? Do you, do you think he had stuff in his life like as he lived? And God blessed him and honored him because God said that they would to Rahab? And so he sees this Moabite girl, instead of like treating her for how the culture would, he treats her with dignity and respect. It's beautiful. And she doesn't know any of this. And she says, why? Why? I don't get it. And in verse 11, Boaz replied to her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. He says, I've heard the whole, you're just meeting me, but I've heard all about you. Like, I didn't know that was you when I walked in today, but when, when my middle management guy says, this is that girl from Naomi, I've heard all about you. It was a small town. I heard how when your husband died and your father-in-law died, you stayed loyal to your mother-in-law. That when given the opportunity to return to your people, you said you're going to follow after God of Israel and how you've come here. I know all about you. And he's impressed with her. And verse 12, I, I've never noticed this verse in the Bible, but this is a beautiful verse. This is my prayer for you guys. Like this for each of us. Look at what he says. He, he's, the, he's wealthy. He's providing for her, but he recognizes that this happenstance, none of it happens to do with him. It's all about God. And he said, may the Lord reward your work. 
that as she prayed, as she sought, as she stepped out in obedience, that God blessed her work and her heart and that your wages come from the Lord. And then the last phrase is beautiful, that the God of Israel under whom's wings you have come to seek refuge. See, it wasn't just about the bread at all. She knew who the true God was, and so she left her people to follow after God. And she's there in a difficult circumstance, and he sees that because he's a lover of God. And he says, may God comfort you because you're here to seek his refuge. And then she says, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. It's this beautiful picture of trusting God and, and trusting God doesn't always necessarily mean that it's a, 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 a comfortable or easy situation. And all through this story, we see the hand of Christ in our own life. Decisions that we need to make. I don't know where each of you came from. I know where a lot of you came from. Some of us come from Christian homes. Some of us come from like totally non-Christian homes. But we each have that decision to make. Lord, will I follow after you? Regardless of the circumstance. That song, I don't know the words, but you know, no turning back, no turning back. That him. I've decided to follow Jesus. That's what it is, right? No, I, I'm getting good. And so you see, Ruth, I, I've decided to follow after Jesus. Yahweh. She was going into the storm. Going to Israel was not going to be the easy road for her. And then she got there and she said, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to work. I'm going to serve. And it's amazing how God worked out everything for her. And so, Father, as we continue to look at this book of Ruth, Lord, we thank you that you are um, just so awesome, Lord. We thank you that you are greater than anything that we're going through. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God of redemption. We pray, Father, um, that you would help each of us, Lord, if we are here and we don't know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would, Lord, help us to make that step that we would trust. And Father, for all of us who have made that decision to follow after Jesus, we pray that you would help us to just to, to stay um, in your arms, Lord, that we would find refuge in you. We thank you, Lord, that you, um, you're faithful to us. Lord, we just give you all of our cares, our concerns. We have great worry and strain in this life, Lord, and we're not able to see over the horizon. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us um, to walk closely with you, Lord, all the days of our life. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.